You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everyone. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Soon we hope to have live broadcasting from the 3CR studios operational on a small scale, but we are still mostly broadcasting remotely. We are running an online campaign instead of our usual Radiothon this June, so if you have any cash you can throw our way, go to 3cr.org.au. It would be much appreciated. Today on Solidarity Breakfast, we hear from Bernard Caleri, who was featured on a recent Search Foundation webinar. You can catch all of the Search Foundation reports on their YouTube channel. A couple of months ago, Bernard gave Solidarity Breakfast an interview about his book, Oil Under Troubled Waters, Australia's Timor Sea Intrigue. It's published by Melbourne University Press and is available through the new International Bookshop, which will be opening its doors soon, I'm told. There is always the online option, and we're getting really good at that. This time, Bernard has just come back from the secret court hearings being held in Canberra, where he is being tried for revealing information the federal government deems to be against Australia's security interests. It's a funny place to be for a man who was the former Attorney General for the ACT. This discussion has some fascinating background to Australia's foreign policy and foreign affairs in general its role in our region and gives a a first-hand account of the tremulous moment Australia's democracy is in at this moment. On the same theme of the Australian democracy under assault, we hear from Helen Haynes, who is the independent member for INDI, about the very recent attempt by the crossbench to force the issue of a federal ICAC bill to root out corruption at a federal government level. The federal government fell back on a gag order to stop proceedings. Fascinating stuff. Kevin will give us an incisive round up of the week and we will finish with a call for the release of seven West Papuans threatened with up to 17 years jail by the Indonesians for treason-related charges after their involvement in protests condemning racism last August. But first, an important station message. Hey, this is Jacob from Friday Ray. And I'm here to ask you to please dig deep. 3CR's June Station Appeal. I know times are tough. That's why I'm asking you, those of you who are still a bit cashed up, to dig deeper than ever. Because many of our regular supporters can't right now and you need to take up the slack. You know you have to, you know you want to. 
you know you should, so just do it. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on the big red word right near the top of the page. It says donate and help keep Radical Radio live on air. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Settle in and bliss out on unrepentant politics for the next hour and a half. Funnily enough, the mainstream outlets missed one of the biggest news headlines of the week. The Victorian government made wage theft a criminal offence with a new piece of legislation passed last Tuesday night. I don't know how they could have missed it. The Young Workers Centre at Victorian Trades Hall celebrated with an online party the next day. All their work was made real by the announcement with only the Liberals in Parliament against the proposal. It will mean potentially as high as 10-year jail sentences and a dedicated inspectorate in the mix. A not-so-clever announcement out of Victoria this week was the announcement that one of the 10 blocks of public housing in Ascot Vale is to be demolished this month. The redevelopment is part of a plan announced in 2017 to hive off public housing to the private sector so developers can rebuild it with a mix of private apartments and social housing. Now, social housing, of course, is not public housing. Social housing is put into the hands of not-for-profits, generally speaking, but it doesn't uh, have the same... uh, Accountability, it's uh, really just like ordinary um, rentals. It doesn't mean that people will be able to afford the uh, housing in the same way as they can afford public housing because public housing is related to the amount of income a person has uh, and uh, they only pay a percentage. Anyway, it's a very complicated area which uh, is uh, really upsetting, in fact. The sell-off predates the government's recent $500 million announcement that will see it build 168 new social housing units and upgrade 23,000 apartments. But opponents of the plan, including us, to knock down the public housing, including the Ascot Vale blocks, argue the government is demolishing well-located, publicly-owned apartments at a time of extreme need. And with no plan for what will take its place, urban planning expert Libby Porter said of the Ascot Vale demolition. At the same time, the government is selling public land and privatising public housing sites across Victoria. This is disgraceful public policy, said Professor Porter from RMIT Centre for Urban Research. Hear, hear. The Grom Place housing estate in Brunswick West was demolished last month. And uh, since the COVID pandemic started, uh, the uh, public housing estate in Grom Street with 82 apartments was demolished and A.V. Jennings is redeveloping it with 119 social housing units and 79 private apartments. Uh, And the estates in North Melbourne and Preston are also being demolished. This is part of the, uh, the state government's wonderful private public partnership crap. Anyway, an estimated 80,000 people are waiting for public housing in Victoria. In Brisbane, the demonstration supporting the releasing of 
Refugees held at a hotel in Kangaroo Point into the community have been hotting up with hundreds of people gathering and the move by Serco, the private operator employed by the federal government to run the detention of refugees, moving several of the detainees early in the morning with two people arrested for hindering the transfer. A Greens councillor, a vocal supporter of the release of the refugees, was arrested for failing to follow a police direction. The demonstration continue. And locally, the Refugee Action Collective actions over the weekend were decentralised around the city at key locations to prevent the police from further fining them for demonstrating, while still highlighting the refugees held at the Mantra Hotel in Preston, awaiting medical attention as part of the Medivac scheme. They, the refugees have been languishing at the hotel for months, Rack says that the situation is unnecessary and untenable. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. As promised, we are featuring a talk from Bernard Caleri and who gave it at a search event last week. Bernard Caleri is a respected lawyer and former diplomat. These days, he spends his time at secret closed-door court proceedings where Christian Porter, our Attorney-General, is pushing the case that Mr Caleri and Witness K has put Australian national interest in danger. Here's Bernard Caleri. I'd hate to think people think I'm just breaking my book tonight. I'm 30, 35, nearly 40 years into this issue and um, and it's affecting my life significantly at the moment because I guess most of uh, all, all participants know that I'm facing trial in my own court. I'll be in my own dock that I've spent a lot of my career in uh, as a person charged with conspiracy to reveal information uh, 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 relating to uh, the intelligence service. Now, Luke, um, that's a bit of a blanket on what I can say, of course, but um, people ask me how, how I came to Timor. Well, firstly, I didn't come to Timor because a so-called whistleblower came to my office. Um, indeed, the question as to whether uh, that person uh, who was approved to see me and I was approved to see that person as to why the government would approve that person to see me against the background of 30 years' work and direct advising to the Timorese leadership is something yet to be resolved and clarified. 
and so that's the current issue with me facing trial in Supreme Court. But let's come back to the Timorese, who really are central to this. Uh, Timor Island is shared between, was shared between the Dutch and the Portuguese. And uh, Indonesia achieved its independence uh, not long after the Second World War. And Portuguese Timor remained in a time warp uh, right through to the mid-70s when it was occupied by Indonesia with tacit approval from Australia and encouragement from uh, President Ford and Secretary of State Kissinger. And the story of that occupation period is a story of genocide. And as Clinton, Professor Clinton Fernandez writes, Australia looked the other way while genocidal actions took place, starvations and um, extermination through other measures of significant portions of the community occurred. So... How, do we, how does Australia get to that? How, given our own background as a community uh, that believes it's fought for a fair go, how, how did Australia come to be no better than any colonial power? How, how is it that Australia is, has been, in respect of its relations in our region, a neo-colonial power? So people see me as being uh, in the public gaze at the moment over the events that went on in Dili in 2004. But really, that, that's just one aspect of a wider malaise in our Australian approach to our near neighbours and failed foreign policy. So you've got to see it in perspective. You've had trade issues, export issues, overcoming good conscience. You've had international shareholder um, issues being seen as more important than our national integrity and our national ethical values. So we, way back in the 60s, as soon as we became aware that under that vast granite dome in the Timor Sea, uh, there was so much gas and particularly liquid natural gas trapped along with um, very, very almost equally valuable helium reserves a very rare and very necessary gas in this nuclear age. And so people often uh, criticise Gough Whitlam. I'm one of his critics, but on a more reasoned basis, I think, that Gough and his advisors just sold Timor out so we could make a deal with the Indonesians for the gas. It's a lot more complex than that. You've got to go back to 19... 63 at a meeting in Washington attended by Sir Garfield Barwick, who at that time was both foreign minister and attorney general in Australia, very, very powerful man. And as we know, went on to be chief justice of the high court. In 
Washington in 63, the administration wanted, uh, the Kennedy administration wanted to push Portugal's colonies towards independence. They could see that the self-determination struggle would possibly be taken over by uh, the Soviet Union, China, etc., and and used as a vehicle to propagate their causes. And so for diplomatic and strategic reasons, the United States asked Australia, asked Garfield Barwick in Washington in, um, in February 63, if we could take the lead, the United States would fund it, and we could assist to bring Portuguese Timor out of the time warp it was in, as we were doing under trusteeship in Papua New Guinea. Barwick said no. He said no. We're not interested in leading the Portuguese Timorese to self-determination. At that time, and for the next few years, Barwick was sitting in Cabinet as Foreign Minister and as a uh, well-briefed commercial Silk, QC, uh, for commercial companies, including exploration companies, he was dealing with the division and maritime boundary in the Timor Sea, and there was no way, in my view, and in the view as the documents reveal, that we wanted an independent Timorese having capacity to fund themselves as a rich mini-state on their own gas and oil. Moreover, uh, because the independence movement in Timor was perceived to be on the left, uh, which is no great issue, um, in strategic terms, uh, Barwick was able to uh, accept intelligence advisings that the Indonesians were rapidly anti-Chinese. Of course, as we know, in 1965, over a million uh, Chinese and other Communist Party members perished in a vast pogrom in, in Indonesia. So Australia felt that anti-communist generals were taking power in Indonesia and it would be better to see Timor in the hands of anti-communist generals than to have a leftist, Fretland-led government in East Timor. And so we, Australia... Uh, we were complicit in the takeover by Indonesia. Not long after the takeover in seven, 1979, we commenced effective negotiations with Indonesia to try and make a deal in the Timor Sea. And we did with Indonesia, so far as West Timor was concerned, and then there remained the, the infamous Timor Gap. So my book records all of that. Um, it's full of citations and footnotes and um, documents that we ca we have got. The Australian Archives is not a very um, uh, useful place for much research on these issues, but a lot more is available in Washington and in the Royal Archives in the United Kingdom. So... This was an exercise in historical research for the Timorese to find out what went wrong for them. 
There were times when I read documents in uh, overseas that had been redacted or removed or never handed over in compliance with the Federal Archives Act 1983 for archival purposes. Other times I'd see redacted documents in uh, Canberra and I'd have to go to the Royal Archives in Kew and I invariably and often found the unredacted form of it because we had a habit in those years of getting copies to our British colleagues and our United States colleagues in the State Department. But you see, um, the real issue is that back in 63 and 64 and 65, we set about a course of conduct that ultimately led to the sellout. Now, Gough Whitlam's sellout um, marred his career and mars his legacy. And we've got to be very frank about it. Um, you find then contemporary evidence that, and Gough's own evidence many years later in 1999 to a parliamentary inquiry, that he simply regarded Timor, Portuguese Timor, as part and parcel of that group of islands and those peoples. Uh, he didn't put much weight on the fact that uh, Timorese, the, Timor, the East, the Timorese on the East Island were significantly Christianised, and he didn't put much weight on the fact that if we gave them their oil and gas, they would be self-supportive and, and could make their way. He simply took the imperial view that, well, it belongs with Indonesia. He even said in his retirement in the, during a parliamentary inquiry in 1999 that as an Air Force navigator during World War II, he used to fly over the islands and he regarded them as a group of islands that belonged together. Now, that's a colonial viewpoint and that's a flaw in his uh, legacy. Uh, but I found no evidence that Gough was driven by gas and oil. Sure, his advisers were, and indeed, uh, Leonard Hewitt, then head of our uh, Minerals and Energy uh, Department, was pressing for us to... Uh, you know, make sure that we could get as much of the seabed shelf as we could. And, of course, our diplomat in Jakarta at the time, Richard Woolcott, um, said very frankly and candidly that we'd be better to negotiate with Indonesians and the Portuguese. So that's a, that was a pretty sad time as well. So Barwick could... It, Barwick's decision uh, not to support American moves to give self-determination to the Timorese in a staggered, developed way, the way we were doing in Papua New Guinea, was the, the real sellout. The real sellout. And the shabby deal with Sahato in 74, 75 by the Whitlam government um, just, you know, put the icing on that that awful uh, situation. And then you move on to um, Australia's Foreign Affairs Department never hedged its bets. In fact, it helped with the development of the law of the sea, the international 
law of the sea treaties and international law that, of course, hung it itself on in the end because those laws clearly indicated that Timor Leste was entitled to the median line, etc., etc., in Timor Sea. But we, there was no inkling of that. I remember when I was serving in Paris for about five years in the 70s, the Ayatollah Khomeini would sweep onto my train on the Lin de So every other morning with all his entourage. The French were giving refuge and asylum to Ayatollah Khomeini. Classic French hedging their bets. What were we doing to our Timorese refugees? We weren't allowing them access as we first of all refused them refugee status. And secondly, because they weren't refugees, we delayed, delayed, delayed permanent residence for years and they couldn't access English as second language classes, etc. etc. We didn't hedge our bets. We we assisted as Clinton Fernandez um, has written with um, turning a blind eye to the sufferings and starvations, we seem to have again, again and again, significant foreign policy advising failures. Our foreign policy advising in respect of our region has left us where we are now, despised almost right around the region, despised from uh, Timor Island in the in the east, all the way across to the Solomons. We've had our Prime Minister Morrison say recently that if the sea uh, global warming and the sea levels rise, at least we can assist the Pacific Islanders with uh, coming here to pick fruit. I mean, that's neo-colonial attitude. Um, it's an attitude that somehow or other they are races of people we can exploit and there's an inherent racism in our approach in our region. We haven't learned to live with our neighbours. We want to dominate them. We've got this relationship with Indonesia that we need to build on and work on and where trust and integrity is vital, particularly in terms of the growing uh, threat to secularisation in Indonesia itself. If we're going to use repressive laws here to uh, smother journalism, to encroach on uh, freedom of expression, to use terrorist laws on lawyers like me, uh, we are telling the Indonesians they can do the same. Uh, uh, your participants, Luke, might be interested to know that on the Friday last week when I got back from my own court hearing that I can't talk about, um, secret one, uh, there was a email from the Hong Kong Bar Association attaching this uh, odious ordinance that's been directed from Beijing, uh, whereby Hong Kong's police and judiciary are going to be directed to give the utmost weight to the national security of China in dealing with protesters and, and freedom of expression and dissent. When I read the translated Ordinance 3, I, I recognised it. It's very, very similar to the provisions being used against myself at the moment 
which allows the Federal Attorney General to declare that um, any information I speak of about what happened in Dili in 2004 uh, would, uh, would be prejudicial to national security. And uh, therefore, um, in assessing that Attorney General's certificate that Christian Porter's issued in respect of my trial for conspiracy, the judge has to give, under another provision of this terrorist law, the greatest weight to the Attorney General's opinion. Now, that's the ordinance that's been sent down from Beijing to Hong Kong to be implemented. So that was last uh, Friday week evening, my realisation that what are we doing here? Uh, who's leading who? It, it, it was, did we give Beijing the model or are we modelling ourselves now in crushing dissent uh, uh, on some of our less democratic neighbours. That's a foreign policy failure. Because failing, uh, trialling me, trialling Witness K, is above all a foreign policy disaster. It's telling everyone in the region, A, what we do, and B, that we don't brook dissent, and that our democracy is very, very fragile, if it's working effectively in this respect. So, and why, why do we get to this? And can we look for models elsewhere? Well, um, democracy is fragile around the world at the moment. The foreign corporations have derived enormous wealth from the Timor Sea, while the Timorese still have significant problems in keeping their infant mortality rate to a reasonable, acceptable figure. How can you have a foreign policy that supports that? Now, we don't have proper parliamentary oversight of either our foreign policy and its intersection with intelligence activities. We don't have proper oversight. And you've got to give it to the United States. They did have their... their they have had their Watergate inquiries. They have had inquiries. They have exposed issues. And there is a fairly active uh, congressional intelligence security review oversight process, next to none here in this country. No operational oversight. There's just a few procedural and policy issues flung out to the members of the committee. That's how we are trying to run our democracy. It's in a conclave. Uh, talk about the Vatican. I mean, uh, there are probably half a dozen people in the real know in Canberra on very important issues. Very, very important issues of, of extreme importance to our nation and our future and our relationships. You might have a very small group of senior bureaucrats and maybe a couple of docile ministers who are generally going along with it. That's the way things are run in this country. It's not run that way in the United Kingdom. It's not run that way in the United States. It's certainly not run that way in Germany, France, and other countries' processes that I'm familiar with. We simply elect these officials 
and they accept the fact that they can't ask too many questions of a number of powerful bureaucrats who really do the settings and look at the result of allowing them to set the settings in the Pacific at the moment. Look at the odious manner in which we are held throughout the region now. And certainly it's something we've been digging since the Octetti mine went in, since the Bougainville mine went in, since Rio Tinto went into Bougainville. These are foreign policy pitfalls that have been dug long before we started to rip the Timorese off. This is not a legacy that the nasty little whisperers are saying is because uh, someone blew the whistle. The current situation, including the basis for why I'm on trial at the moment, stems from abject failures in our foreign policy. It stems from the fact that lots of very intelligent diplomats have quit or retired over the years. You can ask Richard Butler, Luke. You can ask any number of people, Fitzgerald. You can ask decent diplomats why they uh, ended their careers, why they left early, why they moved on to uh, non-government organisations. There's a wealth of sense out there, but just a small cabal at the moment have uh, got uh, compliant ministers, uh, ministers with no intellectual or uh, skill sets to deal with these issues. And the ministers who need more support, who should open the matter up within their own cabinets, within their own party rooms for debate. And so when I talk about us Australians not knowing, I'm also talking to lots of backbenchers that I know right across the political spectrum who don't know what's going on. They're elected to Parliament to contribute. And uh, certainly the trusted members of Parliament across the spectrum who are on the alleged oversight committees have no idea, I say idea, I say it deliberately, of the real goings-on in many of the intelligence uh, functions of those usually very good agencies. The liquid natural gas in the Timor Sea that, you know, Australia was conniving to take had an almost equally valuable helium content that Australia gave away. Gave away. So we didn't even steal it for our own people. It was given completely away to foreign shareholder-held corporations, billions of dollars worth of helium, just given away as waste gas. How did that happen? It's explained in my book. And that's what should have the Australian National Order Office um, examining and whether certain provisions of law are being breached, also examined. And uh, my book calls for that. Mind you, it's just luck of the game that I launched my book at the beginning of the corona uh, virus thing. Uh, all the launches were cancelled. but So that was a gift to the coalition. Absolute gift. So there you go.
You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We were listening to a First Nations artist, Kihan's debut track, Better Things. Let's hope she's right. During the COVID-19 stay-at-home, the Australia Institute has been busy running a series of webinars focusing on Australia's future, and they were right on the money with the most recent one called Safeguarding Our Democracy with Helen Haynes. Now, Helen Haynes is the independent member for the hotly contested seat of Indi, where the community worked hard against the Liberal National push for the same old, same old representation that suited only the established order, not the community of Indi. So it is fitting that fighting for democracy is at the forefront of Ms Haynes' agenda. We hear first up from Ebony Bennett from the Australia Institute, who sets the scene, then hear from Helen Haynes. So at one point during this pandemic, the government was spending money at the rate of about $20 billion a day and really huge decisions are being made and more enormous government spending uh, of tens of billions of dollars more is going to be required before this recession ends. Uh, we've got a national COVID-19 coordination commission that was handpicked yet operates with quite a bit of secrecy and without uh, a huge amount of oversight or accountability. And yesterday we heard that only one of six commissioners on the committee has volunteered to release their conflicts of interest publicly. Uh, but corruption has always been a big risk because governments wield huge power and have huge spending power. 
even within the private sector, whether that's through government contracts or the provision of services. And of course, there can be no trust in government without accountability, which is why the Australia Institute uh, pushed so hard at the beginning of this pandemic for proper scrutiny, particularly when Parliament was suspended right at the beginning of this. But it's now been more than two years <clears throat> since the coalition government promised it would implement a Commonwealth Integrity Commission, but we still haven't seen any draft legislation on that front. So to discuss the importance of safeguarding our democracy, today I'm joined by independent member for INDI, Helen Haynes, who has been a vocal supporter of the need for a federal anti-corruption commission. Um, Helen, I'll, yesterday we saw quite a bit of pressure on the government to get moving on its integrity commission from the crossbench, which two years on is more or less still nowhere in sight. Um, can you just take us through what happened in Parliament yesterday? Yes, yesterday, uh, the, the crossbench um, led uh, yesterday by Adam Bant uh, moving a motion in the House to bring on the uh, Federal Senate last uh, September, actually, uh, to bring it on to the House for debate and a vote. Uh, but uh, indeed, we were not successful in that bid. We were shut down by the government and uh, I was the seconder to that motion and was uh, indeed gagged in my attempt to, uh, to call for debate on the Federal Integrity Commission Bill. Um, so maybe I will just uh, speak more broadly, Ebony, um, and uh, I guess introduce what we're talking about today. And, and I suppose really the, the phrase safeguarding our democracy is, is not exactly a knee-jerk reaction when, uh, when one thinks about the economics of a pandemic. But from my experience as an independent in this parliament, ensuring integrity in federal public administration and protecting the right of parliament to scrutinise all public officials, from senior public servants to parliamentarians and their staff, is absolutely crucial in a crisis. And there are many examples, and you just touched on one then, uh, where this government has let slip on its duty in this crisis. And, and I think the NCCC is indeed uh, one of those places. Uh, and of course, we know that there's an unwillingness from the government to allow the Treasurer and other ministers to front uh, from, from the House to front the Senate COVID uh, inquiry, which is in fact the only parliamentary oversight mechanism this country has had uh, for many months while the Parliament has, uh, has, been, uh, uh, has not been sitting. Uh, I also want to say that we save democracy even when we are not in a time of crisis. The way of bringing things that are important for, but there are issues like, like sports fraud, uh, things like uh, the sister and the mayor of Sydney. Um, but I guess what I want to say really is rather, you know, a fascinating thing at this point in, in history. We've seen a falling trust in government and, and a disillusionment with politics for democracy for a long time now. Um, but what we've got right now in Australia, I think, which is fascinating in a time of crisis, is that the government asked all of us, all of you listening right now, to trust them in ways that we could never have imagined before. And it's asked Australians to download the COVID Safe app, to accept indefinite suspension of parliament, uh, to be responsible for social distancing, knowing the impact that has on our social liberties, uh, so that we could, we could flatten the curve. Um, and this was a huge extension of trust from the Australian public to the government. 
And I think, and I reckon you would agree with me, that the Australian public should expect some reciprocity here and that that level of trust and transparency that we gave so willingly uh, is a two-way street and uh, this time uh, that we should be calling for a Federal Integrity Commission by way of repaying that trust, if not for all the other valid reasons. Um, I think that we would also say, really, and, and, it, and I think it is extraordinary because, you know, I'm a former public health researcher and a midwife. I'm not a, I'm not a legal practitioner. Um, but I know uh, that it was an extraordinary effort from the public to flatten the curve. And we did that. Uh, we did that because the government on that occasion decided to listen to experts. Uh, it took the politics out of policy. It listened to experts. And I'm saying, really... Um, that it's time to listen to the experts yet again on the Federal Integrity Commission. And we have experts with us today with Justice White and Justice Harper. Uh, and if we listen to experts, we do get good public policy. We've seen that in the pandemic. Uh, but as you said at the introduction, uh, it's nearly two years uh, since the government promised us its bill. Uh, and, and I am uh, not here really to, to politicise this. I'm really here to get the job done. And I, and I came to independent politics really, uh, not for the mudslinging. I came here to see and do what the people in my electorate called me to do. Uh, and, and one of those key things was to fight for a robust uh, Federal Integrity Commission. And one way of doing that really, and to steer clear, clear of, of pointless politicisation, um, was to find a touchstone for everyday Australians to to buy into what this is all about. And um, so in February this year, joined by, by Justice Harper, actually, um, I introduced the Beechworth Principles. And, and I chose that, uh, the Beechworth Principles, because of a story, an incredibly symbolic story that occurred in 1853 in Beechworth, beautiful gold mining town in my electorate, whereby an innocent young gold digger named William Guest was shot and killed by police in a flagrant misuse of power. And his murder was then subject to a closed hearing, a closed hearing with key evidence suppressed. And, and that absolutely uh, was, was an appalling situation which the gold diggers refused to accept. And they did something about it. And, and I think it's a great unifying story. Uh, and I love it for what it symbolises. Um, and that is that there is a tradition in this country that's bigger than all of us, that comes before all of us. And it says that when, we know when things don't feel right, and we believe in the power of community. We believe in the power of community to set up systems that will make them right in the public interest. So for me, that Beechworth story then uh, precipitated me uh, coming up with five key principles. First one is broad jurisdiction to investigate uh, the people it needs to in a Federal Integrity Commission. Common rules so that everybody is held to the same standard of behaviour. Appropriate powers so that a Federal Integrity Commission can actually do its job. Fair hearings so that investigations are done openly when in the public interest and accountability to the people, not to political interests. And I think that, you know, one of the purposes of these principles is to give me and engage members of the general public like you listening, um, some clear and traditional principles, not politicised ones, that can help us unpack whatever bill comes before us and see if it actually does uh, pass, pass that test. Uh, I think they can take the sting out of the debate and I, and I think that they're a unifying way for me to come to the table with other MPs to talk about uh, a Federal Integrity Commission in a safe intellectual meeting place and really talk about what a commission should look like and, again, get away from the politics. Um, so, 
at the end of the day, I'm a community independent. I'm here pushing this because integrity is something that communities right across Indite tell me is really important. And I know that to get this over the line is going to take a considerable amount of bravery and I'm going to have a lot of uncomfortable conversations and there'll be a lot of uncomfortable movements like yesterday. First time in the house I was ever gagged. Didn't like it much. Um, but, you know, I'm a rural midwife by background and um, I know that uh, bravery is something that we need to have. Uh, and I also know that it takes vision and collegiality. And, and I think the Beechworth principles give us that. Uh, and I also know that it, just like those gold miners, it takes an inspired and driven public to call out. And I invite you all to write to your Member of Parliament right around the country and push them to have a look at the Beechworth principles, to come and have a talk to me, to step away from politics and do what this Federal Integrity Commission is really aiming to do. And that's set a culture of integrity across the Parliament. Uh, and I think together we could do something genuinely landmark in this Parliament. Two years ago, I stood at Trades Hall in Melbourne, having just lost my husband at work. I had just embarked on a steep learning curve. I learned that the death of our workers was no accident. It was a result of a fundamental cultural problem with workplace health and safety in this country. I learned that the systems are not working and that the laws are insufficient. Over the past 12 months, 39 Victorians have not come home from work. Already in 2020, we have lost 25. These people are not just a number on a WorkSafe spreadsheet. They are our people. They leave a huge hole and the harm done by their loss is immeasurable. We remember and honour those who never came home and we commit to carry their memory with us as they continue to work towards the only acceptable number of workplace-related deaths, zero. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the teams have been selected for this afternoon's big game between the Socialist Reds and the Caring Business Class Blues. With the Socialists making three big changes, dropping three players, most of their supporters didn't even know existed, including delisting altogether Adam Slammed and Wrecked, the player who allocated the team numbers at his own expense. Team captain, the pejorative Dan, told the week that was they had been dropped because they failed to follow the team plan to stack the back line. They stacked the back line, the forward line and the bloody boundary line, he complained. Richmond, of course, has an Indigenous player called Sydney Stack, but this one is very much a Melbourne Stack, although given slammed and wrecks glowing sexist and homophobic and racist comments, we can be pretty confident he... He'd have a racist thing or two to say about Sydney Stack. Effing, 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 effing Sydney Stack. Imagine the effing, effing fun he could have with an Indigenous lesbian player in the Women's League covering all bases. Amazing the number of politicians who may who have been around the Socialist Party for years, stabbing their way to where they are, who had absolutely no idea any of this was going on like former Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition, whose ambition was shortened, and former bum-on-plush Senate seat Stephen Conlem Roy, still described as factional power broker, who both condemned the omitted players.
Well, we know how that sort of thing would upset them. It, it would hit them like a bolt from the blue. Uh, what's the worst thing about all this? We asked them. Well, obviously, they chorused, getting sprung. Luckily, the relentless pursuit of socialism, of the overthrow of the greatest little economic order of them all, is now in the safe hands of Steve Breaks with Workers and Jenny Bacon's single mum's destitute, the crowning glory of her political career, just ahead of the indigenous intervention which the Socialist Party opposed in opposition and supported enthusiastically in government. Steve could advance the socialist cause by achieving his ambition, quoted on this segment a few weeks ago, of getting the evil unions out of the Socialist Party, showing what a dedicated student he is of his party's history and origins. Oh, and reflecting on Adam smashed and wrecked, isn't it sad when the mighty have fallen, when the mighty fall? It's but three years since we celebrated Boral Big Supremo Mike Kane the Workers, Oh, so well-deserved honour as the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review Business Person of the Year. Honoured for standing up to the bullying, evil construction unions over a secondary boycott issue, that most heinous of crimes. And now, sadly, this week, the very same Capitalist Review opened a story, Boral's outgoing and disaster-prone chief executive Mike Kane, the workers. How sad, as Mark Antony mused, oh, what a fall was there, my friends. The company was, quote, reeling from an accounting scandal and generally tough market conditions. What a difference a day or 1,500 or so of them makes. But don't worry, Mike, we won't forget your invaluable contribution to industrial relations. And we hope you get a great big golden parachute handshake to take back to the U.S. of. Well, we can be sure he will, but they all do. Millions in thanks for turning the company's fortunes around to company misfortunes. Bet there'll be lots of construction workers shedding tears at the airport as they wave him goodbye. Resource behemoth Rio Tato, the planet's iron ore supremo, Chris Saul's bury the artifacts, who wishes they could also bury the facts, as the brouhaha about it legally blowing up 46,000 years of Terra Nullius history just won't go away. Says he is sorry about the brouhaha, but was reported as not being sorry for blowing up the Jucan Caves, but... That is a bit unfair, because Chris does say he is sorry for the reputational damage to Rio Tato the planet. It's quite galling, he complained, and that should make the indigenous owners feel better. With an impeccable record of environmental destruction and total disregard for the consequences all over the world, Chris has this enlightened solution to the reputational problem. Look, given the current law quite sensibly, quite properly, removes any right for these terra nullius people, whose culture and history, might I say, Rio Tato the planet fully respects, removes any right for these people to object to a little damage, little necessary damage to that culture and history, then the agreement should also ensure they can't complain about not being consulted, making it illegal to go public with their illegal complaints and thus avoiding the brouhaha about which we are so sorry. 
I know we've never had a great regard for the intellectual capacity, almost an oxymoron, of the sorry forces of law and order, but, but, but even we might have thought amid Black Lives Matter protests erupting worldwide, the US of the UN of the US of the World Constabulary might just think it not smart to shoot yet another black man dead for the apparently capital crime of falling asleep in a junk food queue. Apart from continuing to kill innocent non-white people, the major police reaction to the protests is to protest over the protests, to protest at the way police are being vilified, which again says heaps about that intellectual capacity, which would hardly touch the sides of a thimble. And here, a terra nullius kid on a bike was given a bit of a bashing by an Adelaide cop and then charged with hindering and resisting the copper. Which raises an interesting question. Given the resisting would have been reacting to the copper stopping and threatening him, what was he pulled over for in the first place? Presumably his crime, the reason for stopping him and teaching him a lesson or two about police violence, not that Terra Nullius kids need a lesson in that, was he was a black kid riding a bike, one of the more serious crimes. The protests have led to debates over monuments to white history, that is, real history, expressed in his usual thought-provoking way by former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, over what should happen to Cecil Rhodes statue at Oxford, with some people suggesting poor old Cecil's firm conviction that non-white races were inferior may be creating a, a bit of a problem, for some, but not for tiny. Removing Cecil would be historical vandalism, historical vandalism, he informed us, unlike blowing up non-Christian artefacts, which is just good business. All the white icons, historical vandalism. I notice you cheered wildly, Tiny, when a renter crowd tore down a statue of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad when we invaded that place. His memory deserves to be, indeed, must be obliterated, must be obliterated as part of our liberation of Iraq. Uh, yes, it's been 17 years of invasion and train killing, so that they're still being liberated. They have been a bit slow to recognise what we're doing for them. Bit slow to recognise what we're doing for them. Speaking of, notice former US of Secretary for US of World State and big-time train killer Colon, as in full of shit, pal to the rich, called his commander-in-chief Donald Trump of the poor a chronic liar. And given that Colon as in was the person who produced all that irrefutable proof at the UN of the US of the UN of the world, proving evil Iraq was brimming with weapons of mass destruction, including a nuclear arsenal and planned to invade the whole liberty, freedom and democracy loving world, which convinced the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo here back in those dark ages and Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country Supremo Tiny Blyer to enter the never-ending illegal war, colon calling someone else a chronic liar is, is saying something. Not that the gung-ho little bald-headed bloke and Tiny Blyer needed much convincing as long as they didn't have to be shot at. In a week that was health report... Unless we've spent a week or two on Mars, we know the footy's back. And the connection? Watching the footy that's back with the telly sound down, we were bombarded with this McDonald's salt, sugar and fat junk food ad 
six baby donuts for just three dollars. We've got to marvel at how they can virtually give them away with a tempting shot of these deep fried sugar covered delights and 18 McNuggets and two large fries for a mere $9.95. A footy feast with five cents change from $13 and then, speaking of sport, a race. Would you make it to the donuts and or half time before the fatal heart attack? Couple of finalies. As the tit-for-tat love between teammates and the socialist Reds team falls like manna from heaven for Lord Rupert of Wapping and his Wapping Sin, we asked two of them what their policies for the game were. Uh, My policy is to get my bum on the seat and not that bleep bleep. Right, right, and you? My policy is to get my bum on the seat, not that bleep bleep. I remember when it was principle versus pragmatism, but suddenly pragmatism's starting to look good. And the Capitalist Review headline Thursday, idle staff not keen to return to work. God, hope they haven't woken up there's more to life. That would be a disaster. Good morning. Hi, it's Romy Kareni here from the Voice of West Papua program. I joined the Tricia Community Radio back in late 2009 as a volunteer, a programmer, and also a staff member. And I must say that Tricia Community Radio is the only community station that has been able to bring the voices from diverse community backgrounds and various campaign groups and for those people to be able to tell their own stories. And that is unique. You can't find that in any other stations or in mainstream media. For me, as a West Papuan, to be able to tell my own story and to give an update, that is special. It's important to support Tricia Community Radio this time when everything is in uncertainty. Much love to our Tricia Community Radio staff and volunteers for their tireless work in keeping this station going. Thank you. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. On 3CR, your community radio station on the old-fashioned radio set at 8.55am frequency or streaming and podcasting. It may have slipped under your radar that seven West Papuans are being tried by the Indonesians for treason-related charges after their involvement in protests against racism in their own land of West Papua. This following piece from a webinar organised by the human rights watchdog TAPOL features Philip Kama, former West Papuan political prisoner and one of the lawyers fighting for the seven men. Hi everyone, thank you for coming to our, our webinar today. Um, this webinar again uh, is to call for the uh, immediate and unconditional release of West Papuan political prisoners, in particular the seven in Balikpapan right now. And um, the, uh, thank you for Tapol and Ethan to host uh, our uh, this very important webinar today. We will start with uh, two speakers first, uh, West Papuan, uh, former West Papuan political prisoner, and then uh, the uh, West Papua-based human rights lawyer. So our first speaker today, uh, Philip Karma, he's a uh, West Papuan peaceful political activist, ex-political prisoner, and an Amnesty International prisoner of conscience. Philip Karma was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment for treason in 2005, but released early in uh, 2015. 
So please, uh, Bapak Philip, silakan. Hello. Okay, thank you very much for participate in this uh, session. Yeah, I have uh, experience uh, 11 years in the jail. I must run for 15 years, but because of you all in the world, in the international, in Indonesia, also in Papua, combined about my case, and that is make big pressure for government, and they release me after 11 years. That's why I say thank you very much for all of you. In my opinion, from the beginning, Indonesia take over the West Papua. The West Papua people, they didn't like to join with Indonesia because they know fairly they have a right to independence. And that's government ready prepare them to the independence in their own self. But Indonesia uh, not uh, looking for West Papua people what they want, but Indonesia want to occupy this land because this land have uh, many things about uh wood about uh mine and everything in this land and indonesia didn't care about uh my people and in the, in in other side uh indonesian soldiers come in papua in the beginning they still uh uh intimidate intimidate for papuan people they use uh, military and police also intelligent agent to every time watching for what Papua people doing every day. If in the first time Indonesia come, if uh, some people of Papua, they standing in the road and they still talking and military or police come and cut them and put in the jail, also kick them. But that is, they cut them not uh, follow the rule and then Indonesian government give for yeah I mean uh, long long term for them that is to intimidate uh, West Papuan people if they want to talk about the independent that's why government give big penalty for them until they my time in 2004, they catch me and give penalty is 15 years. After then, because they campaign of you all in the world and Indonesia, because the pressure of many countries in the international, also many of NGO, that's why after then, some of Papua people if they make uh, some activity to campaign about independence, they cut them and on, uh, give uh, only uh, low penalty. But I think maybe now, because of the so 
many of people in Indonesia now, they know really what happened in Papua and many of Indonesian people, they, after they know and they change their behavior to support uh, West Papua people. That's why make uh, Indonesian government now maybe panic. That's why they want to give big penalty for their seven uh, friend in Balikpapan now. That is my opinion. Yeah, now they give big penalty for them. Okay, thank you very much. So to our uh, for our um, second speaker, Anum Siregar, she's a human rights lawyer based in Jayapura, West Papua. Her organization is one of the few NGOs that provides pro bono advocacy for West Papuan political prisoners and rights activists. She's also the uh, one of the uh, team of lawyers currently representing the Balikpapan 7. So please, Kakanum. Uh, thank you for inviting me to give some my experience about the process, legal process for the political prisoners. I will explain about the practice of discrimination of the Indonesian justice system against Papuan people. So as we know, the practice of discrimination in Papua against Papuan people has been around for the long time since the external existence comes to Papua, such as like religions, government, or companies. They are already wrong assumption about Papua. This assumption such as Papua must be repaired repair, change, save, or build. Not from the perspective of the Papuan themselves. Therefore, there is already a differentiating view precisely to demean Papuan people. This is the stigma. How the stigma start in Papua about this situation. And now the stigma changes from behavior to the system. I mean, in the Indonesia system. So even though there are policy or this, like the special autonomy law, which is said the provide protection uh, or respect for the existence of Papuan people, it is inconsistent and always being controlled by Jakarta. So, for example, Papua may have a political party, but it must be approved by Jakarta. Papua may have regional songs or flag, but it must be approved by Jakarta. Then this is proving that the discrimination is still strong. So now how about discrimination in the legal process? So we have many examples about the situation. The criminalization of the movement of youth who use spaces for the freedom of expression. A large number of arrests being held in custody for one day with the police said there were secured even 
though there was no time to be secured, obviously it was an arrest. They they are identified one by one. Then the leaders are put on the trial. So even they being realized, they are not really free right now. And public and politicization of human rights issues so that Papuan people are easily accused of treason. Talking about the basic right of indigenous people, land grabbing, talk about the human rights violation or law enforcement, rejecting racism, easily being called as, as treason. While in Jakarta, people talk about the, the overthrowing power, forming a new parliament, a new state, they are not being processed. This is, you know, discrimination uh, among Papuan situation in Jakarta. And we can uh, look one example, uh, implementation of the multi-article multi to try Papuans who, who are considered against the state. Like the main article, we know about the treason, about the emergency law on ammunition or weapon without permission. So it does not give the room for Papuan people to get out of the law, especially democracy activists and young people. And some the problem about the evidence is forced by the changing the police investigation report. The police investigation always changed the investigation paper. One day they make the one investigation paper and the next step they change the investigation paper. Even before some, someone in the in arrest, the person is assumed that is being the perpetrator. For example, Buktartabuni and friend has not been arrested, but the couple said, make the statement, I know the actors. It is like the, you know, get the article before the law process, before the under justice process. And one of them, we know, they have experience about the torture. For example, in Wamena, around January 2016, we heard about the uh, Edison Hesegem was arrested on the police station and now they bring to the hospital and he died. And then we, we heard uh, the, for the Buktarta uh, Buni and, and friends, the political prisoner in the Balikpapan, you know, when they, when they were arrested, their eyes were closed when they were beaten at the first investigation without the lawyer or the other people only them and the police in the police office. So we know the violence, the torture become to the political prisoner, not only long, long time, not only the, you know, the, the case uh, 10 years ago, but now for them, for the Buktar, for the Henki Lapok, and he make, you know, he make uh, explanation in the court, but, you know, the judges or the prosecutor deny what happened with them. 
So we know discrimination will make problem more complicated in Papua. Internal one internalization of the Papua Papua problem and internalization internalization of the movement in Papua are getting stronger. The legal process will capitalize the youth leaders so that at the end of the legal process, they will be much stronger than before. The Indonesia government must realize the situation. They must be stronger than before, than before both individually or in groups. So no one return to the arm of the United of the Indonesia, or you know, they become to the the good citizen of Indonesia. So instead, more of them are being more more away from the Republic of Indonesia. And for me, the Indonesian government must correct this bad behavior and system. So the existence of the indigenous Papua must be respected. Gathering and gathering and expression space must be opened. The legal process must be carried out in the professional manner. Everyone must be equal before the law. I think enough. Thank you. So West Papuans across uh, West Papua and also outside West Papua have been. Uh, um, have been announcing their uh, solidarity towards the Balikpapan 7. These are the, uh, from uh, this morning alone, we have a uh, religious leaders in West Papua express their uh, call for the immediate release of the Balikpapan 7. And also the communion churches of Indonesia in Indonesia also have called for the uh, uh, same uh, demand. And uh, and right now, uh, today actually, uh, that the, uh, we have solidarity from many um, student associations uh, across Indonesia. This is actually a, uh, a, a new, um, what is it called? Like uh, uh, the movement is actually getting bigger just like uh, Kaka Anum highlighted before. And uh, we would like to uh, acknowledge that uh, new solidarity from uh, Indonesian people, not just West Papua. Our third speaker today is Eben uh, Kirksey. He's an academic at both the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, and the Alfred Deakin Institute of Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. He's an activist and longtime advocate for West Papua. Uh, please. Evan, thank you. It's a real honor to be here amongst uh, real uh, human rights leaders and 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 visionaries uh, from from West Papua. I, I think in situations like this, in situations where there's intense repression, where there's genocide, where there's ongoing discriminatory treatment targeting uh, indigenous people, targeting black people. It's, it's easy to focus on the violence. It's easy to focus on the intensity of the oppression. But what I'd like to do today is really celebrate the transformative visions, the ethical uh, uh, principles, the freedom dreams, the uh, very expansive imagination of intellectuals uh, from West Papua, like Philip Karma, 
as, as well as black uh, intellectuals here in the United States. So this, this week in the United States, we've seen an unprecedented outpouring of support for Black Lives Matter. You know, this, this is a campaign that has its roots in the civil rights movement. Um, we have civil rights leaders, African-Americans who are in positions of power now. And when, when I first met Philip Karma um, more than 20 years ago in 1998, um, I, I actually didn't meet him, but I heard of him. I, I happened to be in Biak the day that there was a flag raising. Um, and at that moment, Philip Karma was calling on the Papuan people to use tactics of civil disobedience, to use peaceful tactics of, of protest, um, to, to call for a reckoning. Um, you know, Philip earlier talked about uh, the unhappiness from, from the initial moment of the Indonesian military invasion, the unhappiness of the Papuan people uh, under this condition of military rule. And in 1998, he had the courage to demand in a public place an accounting for that violence and imagine, he had the boldness to imagine a new future. Um, this week, I've been thinking a lot about a book called Freedom Dreams by Robin Kelly. And this is about the history of the Black imagination in, in the United States, a, a vision of transforming relations of power, uh, political relationships, so, so that the oppression in the United States does not continue. And Robin Kelly in that book talks about, um, if you just look at, um, political movements of African-American intellectuals in the US on the basis of a narrow idea of success. They haven't been successful in the sense that the basic power relations that they've sought to overturn haven't changed. You know, We still see uh, black young men and women being killed by police in the United States of America. This is what the protests this week are all about. But Robin Kelly insists that we hold on to the transformative visions, uh, the political, political dreams of, of intellectuals who are participating in these struggles and inspiring future generations uh, to struggle for change. So, so I see Philip Karma's legacy um, you know, in, in that broader history of, of Black intellectuals who are aspiring for something that seems impossible, for, for liberation from these extremely repressive uh, military and police tactics from legal systems that don't treat them as being fully human before the law, something that Anam Surigar was, was just talking about. So, so these young men that have just been uh, sentenced to extraordinary sentences and you know, for, for peaceful demonstrations that brought people to the streets last year, rallying behind the cry of Black Lives Matter, rallying behind the the cry of Papuan lives matter, indigenous lives matter. These young men have that same revolutionary vision, a vision of a indigenous future that doesn't involve a perpetuation of, of the contemporary relations of power. So, so it's, it's that ethical vision, those beautiful freedom dreams that I wanna hold on to and celebrate. So, so here in the US, when uh, Philip Karma was, was first in prison, um, it wasn't really noticed. You know, the first the first time following the flag raising in 1998, power was functioning predictably here in the U.S. You know, there's there's heavy investment. Um, 
the largest gold mine in the world, Freeport McMoran, is heavily invested in the status quo of the Indonesian military rule in, in West Papua. We also have British Petroleum there. So, so the power brokers in Washington, D.C. don't want to hear about civil rights activists, don't want to hear about black intellectuals that aspire to reconfigure the, the relations of power. Um, after he was arrested a second time for, for waving a flag and raising a flag along with, with Yusak Pakage, um, people started to notice and um, started to recognize that you know, these same principles that animated the civil rights movement here in the US, principles of nonviolent civil disobedience, that these, these are universal values that we wanna celebrate, that we wanna support worldwide. So, so after Philip was recognized as an Amnesty International prisoner of conscience, after organizations like Human Rights Watch, um, Freedom Now, the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Center for Human Rights, took up this case as, as one to champion. Um, power relations started to shift and you saw um, senior members of Congress, of the Congressional Black Caucus, like John Conyers, um, someone who was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, someone um, you know, who had profound influence as the longest serving member of Congress. He became the Dean of Congress, along with other members of the Congressional Black Caucus, like Donald Payne, like any Fali of Amma Vega, we saw, we saw these African-American leaders become champions of, of this vision of freedom in West Papua. And, and I think right now, the, the time is ripe for a similar campaign. Um, we're, we're at the beginning, you know, in, in Washington, the, the forces that um, sort of uh, structure US policy towards Indonesia are very much invested in the status quo. In London, um, a, a very similar story in Geneva, in Canberra, um, but also in, in places like, like Beijing, um, Jakarta. You know, these elected officials and centers of power have, have an opportunity right now to, to listen, to listen to, to stories that uh, seem marginal, but are, are utterly important. So, you know, in, in this week, as people gather in the streets here in the US, and in a moment that very much echoes what happened last year in West Papua, when people are simply asking for police brutality to end, for the arbitrary detention of activists to end, for the punitive sentencing, you know, 17 years in jail for participating in a peaceful protest is, is ridiculous when, when viewed within the frame of international human rights law, when viewed, um, you know, in, in this legacy of, of nonviolent civil disobedience embodied by Dr. Martin Luther King, embodied by Mahatma Gandhi. So, so these, these student leaders who are imprisoned um, just this week, um, you know, I, I think there's a real opportunity for the international human rights community to come uh, together around their case. Um, there's, there's an opportunity for intersectional political organizing on national uh, levels in Indonesia, on international levels, as, as indigenous lives matter um, with renewed um, importance here in the US, as Black Lives Matter becomes a mainstream issue you know, there, there is a real uh, new opportunity for international solidarity. And, and I think, you know, people who are in positions of power, the Congressional Black Caucus remains a very powerful force in Washington, D.C. 
um, you know, even amidst the current administration, that uh, uh, the White House has hate speech emitting from it. There's there's white nationalist movements that are gaining ground here right now. But even in this precarious moment in U.S. history, I really think there is a profound opportunity uh, to do that work similar to what we did with, with the case of, of Philip Karma, to unite behind these young men who have been given unjust sentences. Well, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Tune in next week for more politics with your Wheaties or toast. We will go out with possibly my favourite singer at the moment, Courtney Barnett. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.